It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension? There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Tom Tiger. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. All political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero. Global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. Hello and welcome to another edition of the Beyond Zero show, recorded in the studios of 3CR Melbourne, syndicated around Australia on the community radio network and podcast on the internet at bze.org.au and 3cr.org.au and whatever podcasting app you choose to use. And don't forget, you can also follow us on Twitter at bzetechshow. Our guest today is Clay Collier. He has a long history in information technology industry, working in fields as diverse as financial services, location services and demand response. He is the founder and CEO of Kisensium, a software company dedicated to enabling the integration of energy storage into the grid. And Clay joins us from Oakland, California. Can you hear me, Clay? Yes, I can. Good morning. Yeah, I believe it's afternoon where you are, so thanks for that. But people could be listening at any time, given the amazing technology we have today to be able to time shift when we listen and the things that we're really interested in. And here on the Beyond Zero show, we like to think of ourselves as having a very specialized audience that uh, that loves to hear about interesting new technology and yours is no exception. I was wondering if you could start first by just giving us a bit of your personal history. Uh, I spoke about the diversity of your experience, but I'm interested in the transition you made in reading a bit of your history on moving from a situation where you're working for a large company, potentially, and you know, you're maybe a cog in the wheel to then getting out on your own. We may have people who listen who are thinking of doing the same thing themselves. So could you talk a bit about that transition from being someone who is part of a larger organization and uh, executing on someone else's mission to becoming an entrepreneur and wanting to go out there and do something yourself? Certainly. So my career began at a smallish software company in Berkeley. I got a degree in physics, went right into software. So my initial experience was with a fairly fast-moving entrepreneurial company, and I got that bug. I got the feeling that this is fun. I like the pace. I like the excitement. It was fun. Subsequently, I worked for a company that was acquired by a company that was acquired by a large international conglomerate. And I had the experience of working at a more stable pace in a more uh, substantial organization. Certainly, it it had the ability to move product more aggressively, but uh, I missed the old pace. I I missed speed. I missed, you know, invent something and get it out fast. And I certainly had opportunities. The first one of the company I started all by myself was Kivera. And that was a software company. I had already been working in the map database domain, developing car navigation software. And one of my major customers asked me if I would uh, go on a slight tangent to work directly with them with my own company. And I jumped on the opportunity. Uh, And I'm a big fan of if you have a customer and an opportunity, sometimes you have have to jump. You have to just decide, okay, I'm aware of the risks. I can quantify the risks. And I quantify the upside, but in my in my heart, if I want a little adventure and I want to move faster and I want to get some technology out fast, do it. And then subsequently, I started another company that was acquired by an international conglomerate, and I'm back to another startup. Just started this one with two of my comrades from over the years, uh, Bob Barkley and Paul Lipkin. And you know, it, it's it's fun. It's it's always higher pressure. Everything you do seems to matter more. 
certainly the, both the technology and your uh, visibility move faster. But it it is fun to, to work in startups. And if that's something you like, get a taste of it and give it a try. I mean, just you, you may always be afraid to jump. But when you're afraid to jump, it's a good time to jump. Give it a try. Right, yeah, you're on top of that 10-metre uh, diving board. You know, get off there and if you crash and burn, so be it. Yeah, great story. And I think you embody that what we call a serial entrepreneur. You've probably had that term uh, put put to you a number of times. You spoke about one of the previous companies you started, I believe, by the name of uh, Acucom. Is that correct? Acuacom? Is that the correct pronunciation? So it, it's Acuacom. Acuacom. And Acuacom, I'll tell you about the name. One of my co-founders was Dan Hennage. The other one was Ed Cook. And Dan was a big surfer boy, and he used to go to Hawaii and go surfing. And there was some nomenclature in Hawaii about a perfect wave, and it was like a divine wave, and they used the phrase akua. And so we, we, we borrowed that to say, okay, we're going to create a divine communication, just a very simple communication that will cause action, that will change energy, and we named it Akuacom. So that, that's where the name came from. It's a great name, yeah. And it, it was a demand response software company that uh, maybe before, we, we do have a very educated audience, but perhaps you could give us a bit of a brief explanation of what demand response is and, and the role it plays in the grid. Sure. So we had the opportunity and privilege to work with, first of all, a gentleman named Art Rosenfeld, who's an esteemed scientist and energy efficiency expert who had a massive effect on California energy efficiency programs. He helped create the California Energy Commission. He invented CFL light bulbs. Uh, he man just did tremendous things. And he had a vision that, you know, if we could automate electrical demand reduction, then we could get much greater efficiency out of the electrical grid. The electrical grid is an amazingly sophisticated machine, but it's inherently inefficient because about 12 to 20 times a year, you have these ridiculous heat peaks and everyone turns on everything. All the air conditioning is going, the refrigerators are blasting, all the machinery is working, the lights are on. And so for just those brief periods of time, you're using twice as much electricity as a lot of the rest of the year. So if we could just shave those peaks we could have a much more efficient system. We could get rid of coal peaker plants. We could do some good things. He helped fund what was called the Demand Response Research Center at Lawrence Berkeley National Labs here. That's a laboratory affiliated with the University of California, Berkeley. And that research center, and in, in fact, Marianne Piet was leading that research, were looking for someone uh, to partner with them and actually invent that software technology that would allow us to send signals to buildings and have them curtail their energy for those key you know, 12 to 20 times a year. So we had the privilege of you know, enacting Art's vision and working with Lawrence Berkeley National Labs to create an automated demand response mechanism. And that allowed utilities to sign up buildings. They could sign up 20 big commercial industrial buildings they could get a couple megawatts of load reduced in those buildings, and they would simply send a signal saying, next Tuesday, there's an event from 2 to 6, are you in? And voila, you have an automated signaling mechanism that we call the automated demand response. And we got the big utilities in California. We have three of the major utilities in the U.S. They're PG&E. SoCal Edison and San Diego Gas and Electric, or SEMPRA, to trial it, and they all succeeded. They all found that they were actually able to affect the load curve and get greater efficiency. 
So after that, uh, the California Energy Commission and the PUC asked us if we would open up the communications protocol and try to help create a marketplace for this service. And we, you know, again, it's rolling the dice. When you're a small company and at the moment you control a particular gamut of technology, if you want to open part of that up, you may be able to leverage that to attract some big players in the industry and grow the market faster. But you better move fast yourself or you're going to get run over. And we, we rolled the dice, we did it, and we created what was called Open ADR. So again, ADR is Automated Demand Response, and Open ADR was a published signal that anybody could use. If they receive it, they can reduce the signals in their, of energy in a building, or you, they could build a server and help a utility enact the service that we were doing. So Open ADR became a tremendous success. And again, Marianne Piet at Lawrence Berkeley Labs spearheaded an Open ADR alliance. And Scylla Kilichodi from the Grid Integration Group to help us roll it out broadly. And it became adopted by several countries, standards organizations. And we subsequently sold that company to Honeywell, who became a leader in sponsoring a lot of automated demand response in conjunction with their energy services around the world. So that was the Open ADR story. It's a great story and standards are so important in really getting an industry to adopt these kinds of technologies. So it's a fantastic achievement. I think at this point, we should, you should move on to, to what you're doing now in Kisensium. And can you give us a bit of an idea of how the, uh, the germ of that idea started out? Certainly. And first of all, as, as always, I'll start with the name. We always have to make up these names because you can never get a domain name for existing words. Oh, so yeah. Existing Kis- words are all copyright these days. You've got to invent it from scratch, don't you? Exactly. So key is earth and sensum is awareness. So key sensum is awareness of earth. So we began, again, we, we, we got to work with some of our old colleagues, Scylla uh, Kilichodi from Lawrence Berkeley National Labs and the Grid Integration Group. After we had sold the company to Honeywell and exited, I was acting as an advisor to the UC Berkeley startup companies at their incubator. And Scylla called one day and said, you know, I've got a really big project that, you know, we talked about while you were at Honeywell. And it's a very visible project. It's funded by the Department of Defense. And we're not having any luck with software. We need a software partner to pull this together. We have cars. We have trucks. We have buses. We have electric vehicle chargers. But we need the software. So I got together with Paul Lipkin and Bob Barkley, my partners in crime and having started a couple of other companies, and we started Keysensum. Now, our objective, and this one was based on the vision of Kamran Gorgonpour. Dr. Gorgonpour was in, at the United States Department of Defense in the Pentagon, and he was specifically working on greater energy efficiency for, for the Department of Defense. He was very active in microgrids, and solar panels, and general efficiency. And then he stumbled on the idea that, you know, we'd also do a lot better with a lot less gas for a whole bunch of reasons. You know, number one, the Department of Defense is the largest consumer of it. It is an expensive and and wasteful commodity in terms of pollution, having to get it, etc. So his vision uh, was, why don't I replace fleets of internal combustion engines with fleets of electric vehicles? Now, you save a lot of operational expense when you do that. You're not buying gasoline anymore. Electricity is a lot cheaper than gas. You can possibly get some of the electricity from photovoltaic, which you've already deployed in some of the bases. And your general maintenance costs, oil changes, etc., brake repairs, massively 
less expensive. So you're saving money in operational expense, but you're going to have to come up with a CapEx to buy the cars. So he was dreaming about different ways to do this, and he stumbled upon something that I really, really, really like. He had a vision to see, you know, the, we talked earlier about what demand response. The grid is going up in demand and down, and that instability is very inefficient. Well, now it actually gets worse when you put solar and wind on it because those are highly intermittent energy sources. So not only do I have the normal consumption pattern affecting the grid, now my generation pattern also has irregularities. So he says, okay, I'm going to do those because I have to. I have to, I have, to have clean energy. Maybe I can use the batteries in the cars, if there are enough of them, to help balance the grid. And there are organizations responsible for balancing the grid. In California, it's the Cal ISO, the independent system operator. And they would pay me to have that energy balance the grid. Beautiful formula. I'm going to kill two birds with one stone, so to speak. I'm going to be able to go ahead and deploy as much photovoltaic and wind as I can. And I'm going to deploy fleets of electric vehicles. And I'm going to help fund the fleet of electric vehicles by providing a service to the ISO. So here's how it works. I've got 42 vehicles on the LA Air Force Base that are either pure electric or plug-in hybrid electric vehicles. They're small cars, Nissan Leafs, up to big buses, trucks, vans, etc. If I aggregate all of those batteries, I've got enough energy, over 500 kW, to be allowed to trade in the ISO market. So every car that gets assigned, I know what the assignment, I know where, how far you have to go, what the state of charge is before you go, what it'll be when you get back. You tell me you have to go to the software to assign a car. I guarantee you range to fulfill your mission, and I guarantee you a slight excess of vehicles in reserve for any short-term missions. But then I know what the state of charge of those batteries is going to be 24 hours in advance. I know exactly what it'll be. So I can make a bid into the market and say, I can give you 100, 200, 500 kW as an energy trading mechanism. You pay me for it. And then the ISO will send me a signal, oops, we need more demand, and I'll charge the cars. We need less demand, and I'll discharge the cars. So it's a little bit like watching a piano keyboard, where I'm going up and down continuously across those 42 batteries to fulfill the requirements of the ISO and to make sure the cars are charged to the necessary state of charge to accomplish the mission. So we, we love that project when he first told us about it. We'd worked with Scylla. We were very happy to work with Scylla. So we started the company, and we developed that whole suite of software. We have a control manager to play the piano. We have the fleet management system to register the reservations. We have a CalISO interface to do bid and award. And we operate in a cybersecure framework on the military bases. That was the beginning of KeySensor. We're on the Beyond Zero show, and we're speaking to Clay Collier from KeySensum, a, uh, a startup working on software to make storage more effective and available on the electricity grid. I'm interested in this concept around that the software to make use of effectively resources that could disappear at any time, you know, or could be used at any time. What are the variables you shift or take advantage of in order to guarantee a level of service with a battery that that could be, you know, someone could just get in the car and drive off and, and, and not be available to you and come back and not be fully charged at all. What kind of variables do you play with to be able to guarantee a 
a resource for the grid, whether it be uh, peak, uh, you know, you know, coming back and, and guaranteeing service or providing, you know, perhaps ancillary services, as he talks about on your website. What kinds of things do you play around with to make sure that it will be available? Is it really just a matter of a, economies of scale and and a bit like a bank being sure that not everybody's going to withdraw at the same time? You know, that's that's an excellent question. It's complex, and the answer will be, I'll try to make it not too complex. So first of all, mission first, right? I've got 42 vehicles. Some colonel wants to drive to Space Command and then El Segundo and then the airport. Some, you know, sergeant has to go pick up a piece for something they're doing. I know because I have the software that assigns those vehicles. I know exactly how far they're supposed to go, and I build a slight margin into that. And then there's variability with things like temperature. On a very hot day, if you're running the air conditioning unit, your mileage is not going to be as effective. So there's a little bit of an art there in making sure that I have enough energy to fulfill the mission with a couple variables plus. You know, there's certainly an extra margin has to be there, and then an extra margin that may be variable with weather has to be there. And there's a little bit of machine learning. When you've done enough vehicle assignments and assess the exact state of charge upon their return, you automate the efficiency of that margin. Second of all, there are short-term requests. I mean, everyone doesn't request a vehicle 24 hours in advance. Some dignitary may have come into the airport. You have to scatter a driver immediately. So I have to maintain a margin of vehicles as well as a margin of charge in each vehicle. So I do have some what we would in America might call wiggle room with the manipulation of the mathematics of how much state of charge I need. So I always bid less than I have. I guarantee the mission first. I always guarantee the mission. And so if I know I have 200 kW, I would never bid more than 150 kW. And again, that's a highly complex machination. You asked a really good question about the sophistication of the ability to implement it. You know, again, we have it so it works. This gets a lot easier if you have something like a fleet of buses or a fleet of trucks that have big batteries and are normally parked overnight. That's a real sweet spot. And I have an incredibly simple, big energy storage to trade in the market. But you're right, when, you, when you're starting with a fleet of cars on short-term assignment and they're all critical and every mission has to be fulfilled, then you have to be much more conservative in the amount of energy you trade across that set of cars. Right, and and people have talked a lot about they haven't spoken about it as much as as they used to, perhaps. But the thing about the the weakness of lithium ion batteries and potentially affecting the the life cycle of, of a battery if you're constantly charging and discharging is this something you're paying attention to in the software, or has the technology of batteries got better that that's less of a concern than it used to be? So the answer is both. So first of all, battery chemistries are still evolving. Second of all, if you look at just quote-unquote dumb charging, then you're looking at you're going to do deeper charges, you might do faster charges, and you may actually do more damage to the cells in the battery just by blanket charging. So if I understand the frequency, you know, I, I don't want to go too deep, I don't want to discharge below a certain threshold, I don't want to do a certain speed. I want to go slow. If I understand the chemistry of the battery, what's optimal for it, well, then I really am happy I have software to control the rate of charge and discharge. So it's like a baby step. And again, you go back to this kill two birds with one stone. I learn more about the chemistry of the battery and how the cells do through the process of charge and discharge with smart charging. So we work with, one of, one of our partners is uh, SNT, Spears New Technology. 
And they literally take the used batteries out of cars. They do the analytics on which cells were used and which cells were burned out and what the implication is to the overall storage of the battery. They replenish the appropriate cells and then they repurpose the batteries. So we can learn from the process what happens to the chemistry of a battery over a certain number of charges and discharges, at what depth and at what rate. And then I can take the refurbished batteries and use those, because he gets those puppies back up to 95 to 99%. I can reuse those batteries and they're much less expensive than first life batteries. So, and again, chemistries are evolving and I think they will continue to evolve. So we don't want to limit ourselves to saying, you know, a lithium ion battery with this many charges and discharges was degraded in its life by 12%. So we can't do this. No, no, no. We understand it. We do. We try intelligent algorithms to optimize it. And we learn how to reuse the batteries after they're replenished. Yeah, so it's an athlete coming to the end of their career. They're not going to be able to play the full game, but you bring them off the bench and they'll do a job for you. That's a good way to look at it, I guess. Now, your company does focus particularly on the integration and management of energy storage. And, you know, you used to be involved in, in demand response and there's all these other resources on the grid around, you know, of generation of, 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 of electricity, which could be variable. Where is the value proposition to look at, demand, at vehicle to or storage to grid specifically and how does it interact with all these other things that are going on that may be going on in a utility like demand response and, and, and variable generation? Okay, so now I'm going to answer your question with both a big picture and a, a minutia of exactly what's happening in the market. In the big picture, let's face it, you know, solar power is here to stay and it's going to grow. Its price has plummeted, its deployment is accelerating. The same is true of wind. You know, in Texas, they generate so much wind every night, you can get money to use it, use the energy. So utilities in America may be facing something like a $40 billion revenue shortfall from their old generated electricity sales perspective within 10 years. They will transform their business models. When I was at this conference in Australia last week, there was a lot of talk about transactive energy and trading energy in two directions. As those business models evolve, our technology will help people generate revenue. Okay, so that's the big macroeconomics picture. We believe it's a big number. We believe it's a big need. We believe that huge organizations like national standard bodies, national regulatory bodies, and massive utilities are going to figure out transactive energy. And we'll capitalize on that by providing them technology to operate it. At the microeconomic level, there are markets, let's talk about the U.S. first. We have seven ISOs, and again, those are the independent system operators that are responsible for balancing the grid. And each of them has paid mechanisms that they can use to balance the grid. They can use demand response, they can use frequency up, frequency down. And again, we can do demand response management with storage. One example, we work with EVGO. They're a car charging network. They have a um, car charging setup down at the microgrid at University of California, San Diego. And they have photovoltaic covers over a car charger. They have a couple car chargers in place, and then they have some batteries. We optimize the energy from those batteries going into the car charger at the time when the highest demand peak occurs. So they can alleviate the cost of demand charge. That could be meaningful. San Diego, 
you know, very hot climate in South California, very high demand charges. You could save tens of thousands of dollars a month at some scale of chargers. It's very meaningful. It's very real from a microeconomics perspective. It makes sense. You get a return on investment. Do it. Second of all, the frequency up-down market is there. The CalISO really likes the responsiveness of batteries. We have to get bigger. We have to get much bigger sets of batteries to make meaningful money there. But again, I'm going to say it at two scales. The macroeconomic scale, within five to ten years, we have to transform parts of the electric utility model. And in the short term, we can use energy storage to both alleviate demand response, which is a meaningful return on investment, and participate in frequency up-down markets. Fantastic. And we're almost out of time, but I wanted to leave you uh, with one question, Clay, and speak about the, the market for storage more broadly. I mean, there is batteries that you know may be in vehicles or may be stationary at a particular place and that's what i guess gets a lot of consumers excited about the storage market but there's so much other other options out there there are things like a pumped hydro which is in in uh, and plenty of places and then you've got potentially things like dispatchable renewable technologies which can be thought of as a form of storage as well in a market like California and, and Australia, of course, being quite similar in terms of maybe in terms of population and and climate, where do you see, you know, where do you see the breakdown of, of those different storage technologies going in order to be able to get to that, that you know, holy grail of 100% renewable energy? Okay, so right now, energy storage is a bit dear. It's just a little bit too expensive to say I get a reasonable return on investment at the residential level. Australia is a wonderful market for having deployed so much solar on rooftops. I'm very impressed. Your, your per capita deployment is number one in the world for rooftop solar. And people that, you know, I have rooftop solar. If you have rooftop solar, you sit there and thinking, boy, am I giving, you know, is, is the amount of money I get to give this back to the utility worth it? Or should I be keeping it all myself? That is a big emerging question in Australia. There's going to be a question of the government willingness to support storage as a residential level. And if they do, then you might get some, as you lose a little feed-in tariff value from returning energy to the grid, you might get a subsidy to actually store your own energy. That would, that would definitely affect the game there. In California, we have a slightly different perspective. Again, we have a decent penetration of solar panels, you know, and we should. We should have more. We also, and this is the difference, I think we're ahead in per capita electric vehicle deployment. So now you've got, remember that, that problem where I'm, I'm charging and the charge is a very high demand. If I combine generation and charging, someone's got to balance that. So in California, I would say our economic opportunity for justification is... You know, I can afford the photovoltaic on the roof and I can afford the electric vehicle much better if I hook them up and optimize overall energy use. So, again, slightly different behavior in the markets. We'll see how Australia does with home storage. We'll see how California does with EVs. But I'm excited about both opportunities. Fantastic. Well, um, we're out of time, but thanks for joining us today, Clay. Pleasure to chat with you. Thank you. We've been on the Beyond Zero show. Uh, brought to you by the climate solutions think tank Beyond Zero Emissions. For more information, find out what we do, visit us at bze.org.au. My name's Anthony Daniel. We'll see you next time. It's not a product, it's a technology. It's an education challenge. A regenerative suspension. There will be a growing demand for industrial photovoltaics. Pumped hydro. Innovation in the financing space. The high-speed train is in all our interests. 
all political lines. Australia is a solar paradise. The market is moving much faster than that. You've got something that's transformational. Solar window in a can. Beyond Zero, global warming science, solutions and action. Taking it to a do-it-yourself level. It's 40 years that the station's been around. I hope it's around for the next 40 years. CR has been a trailblazer. It's still the leader and the benchmark in terms of actually engaging the community. Keep the trail blazing. Support 3CR in our 40th birthday radiothon. From June 6 to 19. To donate, call 9419 8377 or go to 3cr.org.au. The role it plays is really, really, really important and the role it plays in empowering people on a personal level, empowering communities and giving communities the power to actually take a bit of control of their future cannot be underestimated.